Hey guys, welcome back to Late Night Murder. As always, we're your hosts. I'm Nicole. And I'm Chase. And this week we'll be going around the Indiana area and hanging around Interstate I-65 and talking about a cold case. All right. Like we wanted to give a shout out to everyone who's rated the podcast so far. We really appreciate all of your support. If you want more content than what we're putting out on our normal schedule, you can head on over to Patreon and get more episodes while supporting us even more. And we actually released our first Patreon episode earlier this week. What did you think of that case, Chase? That case was insane. That was very, very crazy. If you want to hear Chase completely speechless, you should go check it out. That one was, that was a, that was an interesting one, for sure. It was. Took me, it caught me off guard. Caught a couple people off guard, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, God. (laughs) And I think we have a new shady person this week. We do. We do. Karen, welcome, welcome to the, to the shady people tier. Thanks, Karen. I'm glad to have you. Trigger warning, this episode contains depictions and descriptions of murder, sexual assault, and gun violence. Just a heads up. Our story starts in Elizabethtown, Kentucky in 1987. Okay. Elizabethtown is kind of located like in the middle of Kentucky, but more on the topper half. Topper half. The topper half. I still can't speak. Okay. (laughs) So towards the topper half of Kentucky is where we're starting this one. We're going to start off talking about a woman named Vicki Heath. Okay. She is a 41-year-old divorcee who had just moved to Radcliffe, Kentucky, which is right next to Elizabethtown. All right. She's a mother of two adult children, meaning both kids had already moved out. Okay. Vicki had been working on rebuilding her life after the move and divorce. She had a new fiancé, and he was pushing Vicki to become a better person and rebuild her life, kind of like her second act in a new town. Like, just fresh, clean slate sort of thing. Got it. To provide a second income for the home that she shared with her new fiancé, Vicky got a job at a nearby Super 8 hotel in neighboring Elizabethtown. All right. A little background about Elizabethtown. It was really small back then, and it's still small to this day. Does it sound familiar at all, like the Elizabethtown, Kentucky? No. You're a history buff. No. Okay, it's actually where Abraham Lincoln was born. Oh, yes, of course, I knew that. You know weird shit. Yeah, I know. I didn't know that one, though. (laughs) Well, now you do, and now you will keep that fact in your head for the next 50 years. I probably will remember that, yeah. (laughs) So, like I said, Vicky had gotten a job at the Super 8 Motel, and she got a job as a night auditor there. Okay. So that meant that she would monitor everything for the hotel overnight, working the front desk, dealing with anything that arose throughout the night with guests, checking in latecomers, checking out the ones who wanted to leave really early in the morning, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So Vicky was an avid reader of romance novels, and this job was perfect for her because... She... Well, she just sit there and read all night, yeah. Yep, she got to read her novels and get paid for it when she wasn't busy checking in guests or dealing with any issues. Nice. So Elizabethtown had two motels in the town. It was the Super 8 that Vicky worked at, as well as the Days Inn that was just right down the road. The two hotels were only separated by an empty parking lot that was left for truckers to kind of like park their trucks and be able to get some rest. Mm-hmm. So we have like Super 8 hotel, empty parking lot, Days Inn hotel. Got it. So we're going to go to the night of February 20th, 1987. 
Okay. So Vicky's gearing up for a quiet night at the Super 8. Capacity at the hotel is only around 50%, so it's gearing up to be a slower night. Mm-hmm. The hotel manager stayed there roughly until 11 p.m. when he would leave the hotel in Vicky's hands for the rest of the night until the morning when he got back. So he was going home for the night at 11. Okay. Later on, he would recall that everything seemed quiet and nothing was out of the ordinary when he left. Okay. Sounds like some bad shit is coming here. I mean, the title of the episode is something bad's going to happen in this story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So temperatures that night outside were right about freezing level. And in the early morning hours, it even started to snow really softly. It just kind of covered everything in a thin sheet of snow. Okay. Around 6 a.m. the next day, so that next morning, mm-hmm. guests at the hotel began to stir and went to go check out of their rooms. When they got to the lobby, they found it in a chaotic mess, however. The guests also found that there's no hotel employees within the hotel, and they were unable to check out. Hmm. Like, the night auditor is gone. There's no morning person yet. There's just no one who actually works there in the lobby. Well, that'd be a pretty spooky sight when you get... So at 6.38 a.m., the Elizabethtown Police Department received a call that described this scene to him. The lobby was described as, quote, a total mess, end quote, and in complete disarray. Okay. Guests were worried that something might have happened the night prior. Police officer swings by and would later note that the lobby really was in a mess when he arrived. Numerous items were scattered along the floor. There was furniture turned over everywhere. The payphone had been ripped from the wall. No, there's just shit strewn everywhere. Yeah, so it, yeah, so it's just a complete mess. All right. So with all of this and seeing this, the police officer came to the suspicion that there was probably a fight and someone, probably the missing night auditor, had been seriously injured. Because she was nowhere to be found. There was this huge struggle and fight where she was supposed to be at the front desk, you know. Okay. Was there was there blood or anything? Not that I found. There wasn't blood, but it just looked like a fight had taken place. You had the furniture tipped over. The phone was ripped off the wall. I mean, I was going to say that would probably cause quite a commotion, but, I mean, even if, I, if I'm staying in a hotel or a motel or anything like that and I hear something like that going on, I ain't going out there, dude. I'm not checking it. Mm-mm. I make you check it in the house. You think I'm going to do it in a hotel? Yeah, no, thank no, you. I'm not. I'm not I, I, I don't think so. Not my job. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, the officer calls for backup at the scene. Okay. So while waiting for backup, the officer that's already there, he begins to look around more, kind of decipher what's happening. So he's looking for more evidence of a struggle or if he can find anyone who seems like they may be hurt or anything of that nature. He eventually does find the night auditor, Vicky on the hotel's property. She is found outside the hotel by a dumpster. Oh, shit. Uh, She was found to be in, quote, a dead, muddy grass caused by fresh melted snow, end quote. She was also found lying on her back. Okay. So I remember how there was that that sheet of snow. Mm Mm-hmm. So Vicky is found still wearing her sweater and plaid skirt from the evening prior, but the clothing was obviously tangled, had rips in it, which pointed to a vicious struggle between Vicky and her attacker. Not great. Not great, no. So the police at this point speculate the attack started in the lobby and somehow it had moved out to the dumpster, and that's where it had ended. Okay. It doesn't sound like he just drug her out there. 
So Vicky was actually found to have been sexually assaulted and then shot twice in the head with a 38 caliber firearm. Oh, for fuck's sake. One of the bullets had gone through Vicky's skull and had embedded itself into the ground where it was recovered by investigators. So that's why I don't think she was just a oh, rug out yeah. there. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. God damn it. So a rape kit was actually able to pick up usable DNA from this attacker, and this DNA matched the samples that investigators had gotten off of her clothing from that night, the plaid skirt and the sweater. Good. However, remember, it's 1987. No, no, however. My banned from using that word. God. <laughs> so because it was 1987 and DNA was not nearly as big as it is now in no way, there wasn't much else investigators could do with it, so they did preserve it, but they just kind of put it away. They're like, well, we don't, we can't do anything with this, so we'll just hold on to it. Well, that sucks. Yep. So back at the scene, investigators are canvassing the area, and they were able to find a set of muddy footprints leading away from where Vicky's body was found towards the empty parking lot. Mm. Likely where the killer had hopped into his vehicle and driven away. God, this is just... I always forget how how much this stuff has advanced since back then because this just sounds like some Scooby-Doo shit. Like, they're like, we got a footprint. Yeah. They're like, we have DNA in a footprint. I wonder who done it. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw this thing on Facebook, I think it was. It was something something to the effect of, oh, Scooby-Doo taught us that the monsters in our lives aren't actually strangers. They're people we know. And I was like, I'm not okay. Yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> I was like, can I unread that, please? Yeah. Unfortunately, because of the snow, which, like I said, had begun to melt already, police were not able to recover more than these few footprints. Treads of the vehicle that was in the parking lot were impossible to get or even make impressions of because the snow had melted that much. Dang it. So they have a footprint and some DNA, but it's 1987. Right. This crime quickly stumped investigators who were still trying to figure out even the motive for what was going on. Yeah, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. So it was practically impossible for them to figure out if this was a robbery gone wrong, a crime of passion, or a, quote, targeted rape and execution, end quote. Ugh. Several days after Vicky's death, investigators had meticulously gone through her background and found nothing that would help point them in the direction of any potential suspects. Lieutenant Reuben Garner would later state to the public that they had nothing practically pretty much. They had no substantial suspect, anything like that. Oh, man, I bet that would be rough for for the family, you know? Mm -hmm. And despite all of the hard work from all the detectives that were working on her case, her murder just remained unsolved. What do you mean? Like, indefinitely? At this point of the story. Okay. You almost threw something at me, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like Maybe. said, no more unsolved. <laughs> so police believed at this point that Vicky's incident is a one-off crime. However, more than two decades later, DNA from Vicky's murder would find a match in the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, to an offender who had targeted similar victims to Vicky in the years after Vicky's murder. So this killer would be known as the I-65 killer, and Vicky is now believed to have been the first chapter in his morbid saga. Ew. Yeah. So let's talk about the crimes we knew were definitely the I-65 killer as they happened. Okay. He's also known as the Days In Killer, 
It is creepy, man. This makes me not want to, like, stay in, in hotels. I know. Let's just carry on. Okay. I can tell you, none of the guests are harmed. Well, that's good, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I, I, I don't know. So these crimes we're going to talk about right now are the crimes that actually gave him this moniker of the I-65 killer or the Dazen killer. And they really captivated people who lived along Interstate 65 in the Indiana, Kentucky area in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about Margaret Gill, who went by Peggy. So we'll call her Peggy from here out. Okay. She was the youngest of four children. And at the age of 24, she still lived with her parents, Anna and Terry Gill. All right. They lived in Merrillville, Indiana, about an hour southeast of Chicago. Okay. So Peggy had grown up and lived in Merrillville all of her life. In high school, she had been a member of the Future Homemakers of America Club and loved competing in baking contests. Hmm. Like, that was her jam. Yeah. Peggy loved to bake and was an avid artist, creating whenever she got the chance to do so. After high school, Peggy attended and graduated from Sawyer Business College. Peggy took up a job at a local Days Inn hotel in Merrillville, where she started as a maid. But because of her personality and endearment for her colleagues, she was promoted to the night auditor at the Days Inn. Oh, man. Like when her colleagues would have birthdays and everything, she'd make them super decorated birthday cakes, and she was just a super sweet girl like that. According to Betty Pierce, the Days Inn manager, Peggy preferred the 11 p.m. shift because she could be a bit shy and timid. There were less people to interact with at this hour. It's why everyone works night shift. Right. I, I feel like, at least. Right. Like, when I worked night shift, I didn't want to talk to people. Yeah. Well, also, luckily for Peggy, just like it was with Vicky, the night shift gave her ample time to run the front desk, but also gave her time that she was able to dedicate to her art. Right. So whether it was drawing, painting, or cross-stitching, those seemed to be her favorite things. So this Days Inn Hotel is located along Interstate 65 and US 30, which intersected right in downtown Merrillville. This location obviously made it a prime spot for truckers and other long road trip drivers like salesmen, things like that, to just stop off, rest, take a night, keep going sort of thing. Got it. So now let's go to March 2nd, 1989. Okay. So at first glance, this was an all-around normal Thursday for Peggy, who was scheduled to work that evening. She spent the afternoon before going into her shift being with her dad as his birthday was the next day on March 3rd. She was finishing his birthday cake for his party that next day that she was throwing. As she was leaving for work, she hugged her dad and wished him a quote, early happy birthday, old man, end quote. Oh, man. Neither her or her father knew in that moment that this would be the last time that they'd see each other. Oh, fuck. Terry's 51st birthday would undoubtedly be the worst day of his life. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Yeah. It just really solidifies that you never know when the last time's going to be. Right. Hug your people, people. Yeah, definitely be hugging them people. Tell them you love them. Even if you're mad at them. Say, I'm mad at you right now, but I love you. Mm-hmm. So just before 11 p.m., Peggy arrives at work relieve, and relieves the evening shift clerk. It was actually a pretty busy night at the hotel with approximately 70 rooms booked. The other clerk stuck around to help for about 15 minutes after Peggy had gotten there and just kind of waiting for things to calm down. Mm-hmm. 
Over the next several hours, the temperature in Merrillville would dip into the low 20s in Fahrenheit, which is well below freezing. Mm-hmm. It even felt colder outside because of the brisk winds that were continuous throughout the night, so it's just a windy, cold bastard of a night. Yeah, sounds like it. I don't want it. No, I'll pass. As the sun began to rise, the temperature was rising with it. So So what we do know about Peggy's shift is that it was going relatively smoothly when the afternoon clerk left around 11.15 p.m., as well as when Peggy talked to her manager, Betty, sometime during the night. Okay. Between 1.30 and 1.40 a.m., Peggy checked a guest into the hotel, and it was reported as a normal interaction between Peggy and the guest. However, around 2 a.m., a college student arrived at this Merrillville Days Inn. He claims that he showed up to the hotel, attempted to check in, but there was no one inside. Okay. There were no guests lurking about, no employees to help him get checked in, and he says he waited for around five minutes and decided to go to a different hotel. Right. As you would. As you would. I Mm -hmm. don't blame him. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I would like to sleep. No one's here. I'm... Going to go to the other place. So he didn't say anything about this place being a wreck or anything like Mm -hmm. the other one? Nope, wasn't a wreck, nothing like that that he saw. So this time period between 1.30 and 2 a.m. is when police believe something had happened to Peggy. Mm -hmm. Hours later, around 5 a.m., Peggy was expected to call the hotel manager, Betty Pierce, at home, kind of as a safety measure for Peggy, as she would do at any night shift, as well as the other employees would do. It had become... Kind of a custom in the previous months, as other hotels around the area had been getting robbed, and these phone calls kind of gave some security to the night staff. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, you didn't make your 5 a.m. phone call, like... What's up? What's up, yeah. And so Peggy had always been a model employee that never failed to call Betty, but she didn't call this morning. No, man, not good. Mm Mm-mm. So Betty actually started calling the hotel herself, and when she couldn't get a hold of anyone, she phoned the police to be dispatched to the hotel. Okay, so they're taking this, like, really seriously. Mm -hmm. So the manager's like, you know, Peggy always calls me. She's never missed a call. She didn't call me. Something has happened. She didn't pick up the hotel's phone. Right. Good on them, though. Mm Mm-hmm. So when the first officer arrives, he immediately noticed that there's no hotel staff present in the lobby, but there are several customers waiting to check out. Sounds very familiar. Right. Police officers began calling Peggy's family to see if she had just gone home after her shift. She kind of said, fuck it, and went home. Yeah. They discovered that she wasn't at home with her family, which was not a good sign. Uh-huh. Especially because Peggy's green Plymouth was still in the parking lot at the hotel. Shit. Yeah. So her car keys and wallet would also be found inside the hotel at the front desk. Yeah, she's not leaving that stuff there. Yeah. So despite all these signs pointing to Peggy having gone missing out of duress, police were actually calm about the situation Situation at first. Like I said, there were no signs that a struggle had taken place. Police still quarantined off the area, told everyone not to panic. Years later, one of the responding officers from this would recall that, quote, I waited for the manager to arrive, pretty confident that she, Peggy, would be somewhere on the premises, with people outside and nothing seemingly out of the ordinary. It was a large hotel, and she may have had to attend to something, and it wouldn't be the first time an employee crashed in an, in an empty room, end quote. Right. So that's kind of the thought process of the police officers at this point. Okay. However, within minutes, the laid-back attitude shifted once Betty, the manager, arrived at the hotel. When she got there, she immediately shows police that the cash drawer had been pried open with significant force. 
Money was missing, but it would only amount to $179. Mm -hmm. This would give rise to the idea that a robbery had taken place. Right. And rightfully so, this escalated the situation. Okay. Another thing that happens when Betty gets to the hotel, she tells police that there's an entire wing of the hotel that hasn't been cleared yet. It's actually closed for the season, and it's not being occupied by any guests at this time. Okay. So with this information, officers begin canvassing the area looking for Peggy, and it is here in the closed wing that Peggy is discovered at the end of the hallway. But how would he... How would they not know it was closed? No, how would the person that did this know that was closed? Well, we'll get there. Okay. there. There's a good theory in here that I think, I, I believe this is what happened. Okay. So Peggy is found nude with her clothes next to her. It's actually alleged that her clothes are found folded neatly next to her. Mm. So that's just a little strange thing. The autopsy reports would state that Peggy had been sexually assaulted and then shot in the head twice with a 22 caliber firearm. So other than the gunshot and a cut on her arm, there were no other signs of trauma. This tracked with the idea earlier that there had been no struggle. Just remember, the lobby was not a chaotic mess. Right. So investigators' initial theory was that this crime had been committed by a, quote, sexual deviant on a rampage, end quote. Does not sound far off. Yeah. That must have arrived at the hotel sometime before 2 a.m. when the college kid had showed up to check in and there was no one there. Got it. So they believe that the perpetrator had proceeded to rob, sexually assault, and then kill Peggy in the lobby, then dragging her body to the vacant wing before leaving. However, this theory would change and evolve as more evidence came in, which included Peggy's folded clothing. When police found Peggy next to her clothes, this was marked as a really unusual thing for a violent sexual deviant to do. Like He's not going to stop and fold the clothes. Right, but why would they say she's killed in the lobby if there's not any blood in the lobby yeah so that theory didn't last very long yeah that doesn't make any sense yeah so with all this it pushes a new theory out so this new theory is that the attacker had begun by robbing peggy in the lobby at gunpoint then guided peggy to the vacant wing of which peggy was the only one at the hotel who knew it was closed police believe this may have been to keep the attacker away from the guests maybe he was like the theory is that He's trying to rob Peggy and then wants something more, but Peggy was being mindful of the guests and said, oh, okay, there's a vacant wing over here. We can go over here. Hmm. I don't know if I like that theory either because I would think that, that you would want to find somebody to help you. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, they say that Peggy is just such a... They go into it a little better but in a second, but they say that Peggy was just a super sweet girl and... That's why they think, the reasoning they have is the folded clothes, like that's the biggest thing. They're saying that even though the attacker like forced Peggy to remove her clothing, she folded her clothes and laid them neatly onto the ground because it was like an instinctive thing. Yeah, I don't think he folded the clothes. Yeah, and they just really, the police believe that because of her nature that they, that she was such a caring and sweet person that she would have given in to her attacker's demands without the threat of a firearm. That's why there was only that one cut on her arm and then the gunshot wounds. Hmm. Okay. And I mean, he could have said, hey, take me somewhere quiet. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So like I said, the hotel had been robbed. Uh, the assailant had only made off with about $180. So robbery didn't seem to be the main motive here. Mm-hmm. When investigators were finished looking into everyone in Peggy's life, they found no one that could be a culprit of such a crime. 
Police minds were hardened on to this theory of it not being anyone personal to Peggy because of a very similar crime that had taken place at another Days Inn hotel just about an hour away. Well, see, the thing in the, the thing too is that with the cash register being pried open like that, I would think that that was an afterthought for him to go get the money because if he was going to rob her, and she was uh, a sh- uh, not going to stick up for herself, you know what I mean? If mm-hmm. she was not going to do anything, then she could have just opened it. It wouldn't have had to have been pried open. Yeah. So I think that was an uh, would have had to have been an afterthought. For him to just take the money. Maybe. I don't know. That's a good point. Like, that's a good thought. Right. Yeah, I don't know. That n- n- There's a few things that I, that don't add up for me right there, but what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but that's kind of the theory that the police are working with at this point. Okay. And so, like I said, the... There was a very similar crime that had taken place at another Days Inn, just an hour away. And then this crime had actually happened on the same night as Peggy's murder. Oh, man. This piece of shit's just hitting them all, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, we don't know that Vicky is tied to this one, like these. Right. So just keep that in mind. So right, because like... there's two two years difference between the two, mm-hmm. right? And it's a different area. Right. So we got Vicky over here in this corner, and now we got Peggy in this other corner over here. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about Jeannie Gilbert. Okay. So Jeannie Marie Gilbert was born on November 18th, 1954, to Andrew and Patricia Mitchell. She grew up in Jasper County, where she would live most of her life. She married at an early age, and then she would unfortunately get divorced after having two children. Okay. Her two children, Kimberly and Scott, were in their teenage years when Jeannie had all three of them move in with Jeannie's parents while she took a second and kind of planned the next steps of her life after the divorce. Mm-hmm. So Jeannie had been working as a bookkeeper at an oil supply company for several years. She picked up a second part-time job for supplemental income as a night auditor at a day's end in the neighboring town of Remington, Indiana. Okay. Are you ever going to let me work as a night auditor? No, not a chance. <laughs> But was there a chance before this? No, not really. (laughs) So this position as a night auditor gave Jeannie uh, some quiet time to focus on her schoolwork. Okay, so she's a student. Yep, so she's going through this divorce, living with her parents, trying to get her life back on track. She's actually going back to school studying business. Mm -hmm. So everyone who knew Jeannie said that it was clear Jeannie was a hardworking single mother who was trying to provide a comfortable life for her and her children. Despite going through a rough period, family, friends, and coworkers would later say that she never lost her fun-free spirit, even during the hard times. Hmm. Okay. So, we're going to stay on the same day. We're going to go to March 2nd, 1989. All right. So, while all that stuff, while Peggy's getting ready with the birthday cake and everything, we're going to jump an hour away and talk about what Jeannie's doing. Okay. Just keep that in mind that these are happening the same night. I kept forgetting about that. So it's a normal everyday for Jeannie. She's actually not originally scheduled to work this night. Okay. However, she had switched a shift with a coworker so she could attend a cheer competition for her daughter that next day. Oh my goodness. So that evening, Jeannie starts her shift around 11 p.m., working with the evening clerk for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Around midnight, he le- Around midnight, that clerk leaves Jeannie, making her the sole employee on the hotel's property. 
Yeah. We've heard the story a couple times now, it feels like. Right. Yep. I mean, I really feel like these people, you should never just have one person on shift at a hotel like that. I know. It's not like the hotels aren't making enough money to employ at least two people. I know. But I mean, I also understand the idea of, oh, the night shift isn't that busy. Or a security guard. Yeah, something. You know, something like that mm-hmm. needs to be put in place. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. But I mean, it was the 80s. Right. I feel like that's just a good excuse for everything. Oh, well, it was this time. <laughs> <laughs> so this day's in is really similar to that Merrillville branch that we were talking about. That's only 50 miles away. Mm-hmm. Especially in the case that they're both located right off Interstate 65. Right. So this Remington branch where Jeannie worked is practically in the middle of nowhere and a much smaller hotel than the Merrillville one. Okay. So the town of Remington only had about a thousand people for population and was mostly farmlands. Okay, so it's kind of a rural area. It's just, it's a tiny town. Yes, it's Got a it. tiny town. Tiny town with a, with a small hotel. Tiny town, farmland. It's believed that Jeannie spent the next few hours of her shift in a side room off of the lobby where she worked on her homework for her classes. Okay. It's kind of like you had the lobby and then you had a... Like a back office mm-hmm. situation or yeah, something? that sort of thing. At around 4.30 in the morning, Jeannie makes a courtesy wake-up call to a guest, and this would later be described as nothing out of the ordinary, just a normal interaction. Okay. Around 6 a.m., however, the Jasper County Police Department began to receive calls from customers at the Days Inn claiming that they were unable to check out as there were no employees there to assist them. Oh, my God. Okay, so they got to be, like, connecting the dots at this point. There's got to be something happening because it's only an hour away from each other, 50 miles, you know. Mm-hmm. They're responding at the same time, though. The manager for the Merrillville Days Inn mm-hmm. calls around 5 a.m. to right. the police department, like around 5.30-ish. Mm-hmm. And at the Remington Days Inn, just an hour away, at around 6 a.m., they're... That police department's getting a phone call. Right. So this has to be like he literally did that. He went from one right to the other and did that shit. Yep. They're an hour away. The police get called about an hour, hour and a half apart. ish apart. Yep. Right. Officers from the Jasper County Police Department arrive very quickly at the day's end. And they find that the door to the registration office, that back office we were talking about, is locked. No one can get in. So the morning employee for the hotel shows up around this time and is waiting to be let in as well because they didn't have a key of their own to get into this office. Okay. So with no one at this hotel that's able to get in, they called the manager and she was on her way down with the key. Okay. So the officers at the Remington Days Inn finally gain access to the registration office and discover that a robbery had taken place. Okay. There was an approximate $240 that had been taken, and Jeannie Gilbert was not found inside. So she is missing at this point. Okay, and that's after they opened that back office, too? She wasn't in there? Yes, the back office was closed, but the cash drawer was empty. Was it pried open? The cash drawer? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm. Sorry, I'm stuck on that still. I know, you're trying. Okay. So it was noted that Jeannie's homework, school books, and purse had all been left behind in this office. Mm-hmm. 
As this is happening, the Indiana State Police Department receive a phone call from a school bus driver in neighboring White County stating that they had found a nude body just off of County Road 150 West. Okay. And the body appears to be female. I imagine that is Jeannie then. An Indiana State Police officer begins to respond to this call as he does a handful of White County sheriffs head out to meet him. When police arrive at the location of this nude body, it is confirmed to be a woman. It appears to police that she had been sexually assaulted, murdered, and then dumped alongside of the road. And within hours of this body being found, it is identified as 34-year-old Jeannie Gilbert. Uh, okay, so it seems to me like this guy's, whoever's doing this, they're, they're a, ser- a serial killer now, right? There's been three, we know that. We know, but the police don't know. So he's right. not labeled as a serial killer right off this bat. Right, but knowing what I know, because of what you just told me, it seems like he's building his confidence as as you see sometimes in these people. You know what I mean? It's like it's escalating. Yeah, so it's escalating by not only the body being moved, it's moving. The, t- <clears throat> the timeline is speeding up. Exactly, the timeline. He took her with him. Mm-hmm. He took her from the place, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I would definitely, I mean, I have no certification background. I'm just a, a nice armchair detective that says, yes, this is escalation. Right. That's what it looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Jeannie's murder investigation is originally headed by two separate organizations, so the Indiana State Police as well as Jasper County, with there being a lot of overlapping and jurisdictional fighting going on at the beginning the two decided just to knock it off join forces and the isp would take the lead in this investigation okay police are able to partially piece together what happened that night they were able to note that the killer had to have entered the lobby sometime between 4 30 and 5 a.m with a firearm then he subdued genie in some capacity robbed the hotel like the merrillville attack that had happened just hours before the attacker decided the money was not enough for him Then he used Jeannie's work keys to lock the doors to the registration office. He likely then let her into his vehicle and drove off with her for some miles. Based on the location of Jeannie's body, in relation to the Remington Days Inn, the killer likely fled down Interstate 65 until he came upon the exit for Indiana State Road 18 heading towards Brookston. This didn't seem to be an accident taking this exit or just a, oh, this is the next exit on the road it's actually the first exit from the hotel that had no signs for gas hotel food and it seemed like a less traveled exit okay so it's like isolated Mm -hmm. so it seems that he then drove until he found county road 900 south which eventually led to a clearing where he was able to perform the sexual assault and murder of Jeannie. (sighs) Jeannie's body was found nude with the exception of her socks shoes and jewelry okay Her autopsy reported several scrapes and scratches on her body, which indicated that she had been drug out of a vehicle. Makes sense. While investigators were unable to definitively say if Jeannie had been sexually assaulted, they did say there was a good chance, given that they had been able to find multiple samples of DNA along her body. Jeannie had been shot three times with a twenty-two caliber firearm, once in the back of her head, once in the shoulder blade, and then once in the left side of her torso, which is actually believed to have been the fatal shot. Okay. So Jeannie's cause of death is listed as internal blood loss. Okay. 
Unlike Peggy's case, there are some key witness statements to go off of in Jeannie's murder. A farmer nearby the clearing remembered hearing two gunshots around 5.30 a.m. Okay. And then a different school bus driver for White County recalled seeing a, quote, tan-colored recent model Toyota window van with its lights on driving west on County Road West 700 South, end quote, around the same time as the gunshots were heard. Okay. So we kind of got a car... That may be connected to some gunshots. That's a fucking van. Yeah. They did it. So even with these leads, however, police were unable to track down anything of substantial value in Jeannie's murder. Despite the well-known lack of communication that can happen between police departments, especially in these days, the murders of Jeannie Gilbert and Peggy Gill were connected within that first day or two of them happening. Right. As they should be. Good. Good. And reasons for that being... In both cases, a gunman had sexually assaulted, murdered, and then robbed a Days Inn employee, only making out with smaller sums. Mm-hmm. A twenty-two caliber bullet was found at both scenes, or at least fragments of one. Okay. The only real difference was that Jeannie had been moved from the Days Inn location and Peggy had not been. Right. As investigators would soon learn, these two cases were definitely committed by the same perpetrator. Police in both forces were stumped on who to look at that could have done this and how to find him. Within the next weeks and months, the reporters for the local newspapers would dub these killings the, quote, days and murders done by the I-65 killer, end quote. Oh, man. So we're going to go to Columbus, Indiana, 1990, and we're going to talk about a person we don't know her name. Okay. She's just listed in the court records as Jane Doe. Okay. So, we're just going to call her Jane Doe. All right. So, on January 1st, 1990, a 21-year-old woman showed up to work at the Days Inn Hotel in Columbus, Indiana, about 140 miles away from Remington, Indiana, just to kind of give you an idea. Okay. Columbus, Indiana is a slightly larger town than Remington. The murders that had taken place in Remington and Elizabethtown just 10 months before had not crossed this woman's mind as she began her shift this evening. Okay. So she was working alone, as a night auditor does, as she had done many nights before this. For the first several hours of her shift, it went by smoothly. However, in the early morning hours, this was all going to change. Around 5 a.m., a man enters the lobby wearing blue jeans and a plaid shirt, who would later be described as, quote, a typical blue-collar trucker, end quote. Okay. He stood about six feet tall, appeared to be in about his mid to late 30s, with medium-length brownish-gray hair, which was mostly covered with a dark color stocking cap like a beanie. Mm-hmm. So the hair that wasn't covered by the hat seemed to be unwashed and greasy. So you're kind of starting to picture this guy in your head. Yeah, all right. This man also had a long and full beard that was brown and gray with wild whiskers. He was also described as having eyes that were bright green. They were described as being so shockingly bright that they were almost yellow. Okay. And one of his eyes was noted to have seemed a bit lazy. I think they said it was the right one. Seemed a little lazy. All right. So this man's conversation with the Jane Doe started off rather friendly. He asked her for change for the cigarette machine. And then he asked if there were any good places to get a bite to eat around that were open this early. Mm -hmm. She directed him to a few places that may be open this early. He He said, okay, and left the lobby. Okay. 
This man returns about 15 to 20 minutes later carrying a foam cup, which we know, but she didn't at the time that it's full of hot coffee. Mm-hmm. When the man reapproached the front desk, he, th- he proceeds to throw the hot coffee into this woman's face, incapacitating her almost immediately. Okay. As the woman is trying to get her bearings, like trying to, I mean, her face just got hot coffee thrown into it. So yeah. She's like trying to open her eyes, figure out what's going on, all of that. Mm-hmm. The man quickly jumps over the counter and not only robs the cash drawer, but also demands the money from this woman's purse, as well as the rings that are on her fingers. Okay. This man did not brandish a gun, like you're thinking. Right. Uh, He would reveal later, however, he was armed with a knife. Okay. After shoving this money and the rings into his pockets, he forces the woman to a back area of the hotel near a stairwell, where he would subject this woman to a sexual assault. Oh, God. Once that was over, he then forced the young woman to a side door, telling her, quote, get the fuck outside now, end quote. Oh, shit. She did as she was told, and then the man ordered, quote, don't turn around and keep walking, end quote. Which, I mean, that's just chilling. Like, yeah. No, no thank that's... you. <sighs> so she fully expects to be killed at this point. However, she walks and walks. She makes it through a small frozen stream up a hill to a residential neighborhood and she makes it to a trailer home where the woman inside lets her in and calls the police. Okay. The entire time that this girl walked, she has said that she was scared at any second this man was either going to shoot or stab her as she believed he was right behind her the entire way. Oh, okay. So what? He just told her to go, like go in some direction and then he didn't go with her? Yeah. I mean, she never turned around. I don't blame her. So maybe he followed her for a little bit. Maybe he just dipped the fuck out. I don't know. Okay. Well, that's that's good, though. Yeah, she's alive. That's good. So around 5.55 a.m. on January 2nd, 1990, the Columbus Police Department received a phone call from this woman at the trailer home and quickly responds to the incident. Columbus PD investigated this crime and seemed to treat it as a standalone case not connected to the other two days in murders that had happened just under a year before. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, Columbus Police Department have kept a ton of stuff close to the vest, even the victim's name, for this case specifically. Right. Like I said, we we know her as Jane Doe. Okay. On January 3rd, 1990, this composite sketch was released to the public. It is believed that the sketch was disclosed without any notification to the Indiana State Police's investigation of very similar crimes. Okay, so they're releasing the sketch just for this particular crime. It's not They're not saying it has anything to do with the ones just about a year prior. Yep, so it's not connected is what they're saying. Well, they're, they're not saying it's not connected. But they're not saying it is connected. Yep. Got it. So also... Like we had said before, that police departments didn't really immediately talk to one another. Mm-hmm. They had really bad communication skills with one another. So when they release this sketch to the public, they don't notify Indiana State Police of, hey, we have this guy that did this. Um, right. We have this new sketch. Or like, we have a sketch of this guy that did this. Mm-hmm. So this is believed to be the reason that this 1990 robbery and sexual assault would not be linked to the murders for a couple months. Okay. So as in a couple months, I mean a year later. So in 1991, the cases would be linked publicly and the new sketch would be re-released to the public. Jesus Christ, man. Yep. 
So once the Indiana State Police go, hey, you have a Dazen attack? We have two Dazen attacks. Yeah. They're really, they're kind of similar. Mm-hmm. So then the Indiana State Police had a sketch artist who got with the Jane Doe victim. And they were able to create a better sketch, which is the second one. Okay. So in the pictures, as you're looking on Instagram, it'll be the black and white one is the first one released in 1990. And then the colored one is the one released in 1991. Okay. So I'm just going to show you just real quickly. So this is the sketch that was released in 1990, the black and white one. You can kind of see kind of a basic dude. Yeah, right. Not a lot of detail, but you can kind of tell the eye's lazy, he's got a beard. Yep, and this is the one that, that they released when they didn't say that it was connected. Yes. Okay. And so when they released that it is connected, they this is the new sketch. It's the colored one. Okay. So you can definitely see the eyes are super bright. He's got that gray beard with brownish. He's got the stocking cap. He's got the lazy eye. Yep. Got it. And I tell the sketch is a little more substantiated. Mm-hmm. So obviously that new sketch, the colored one, is believed to be the most detailed account of the perpetrator who committed the 1990 assault. Mm-hmm. As you noticed, it was a lot more detailed. Right. So as the investigations into the murders of Peggy Gill, Vicki Heath, Jeannie Gilbert, and the rape of the 21-year-old carried on, all in their own little things. Again, Vicky's still over here in the corner, and now all three of these are in the corner together. Mm-hmm. There's no substantial leads as everything goes on. Like, the <sighs> cases just get cold. They have nowhere to go. God damn, did they not? Did, like, nobody had cameras, you know? It's like, shit. So in 1992, a man named Joseph Franco is named as a suspect. He's actually arrested in 1992 for a different crime He's arrested for abducting, sexually assaulting, and then carving, quote, I-6-5, end quote, into the chest of a female victim before setting her free. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a slam dunk, but then the I-6-5 thing kind of, I don't know. He would later be cleared by DNA testing. Oh, fuck. See, so he's just a different kind of a, lunatic. Yeah. He's just another lunatic. Mm-hmm. All right. And I mean, his... His, like, motive was different, I guess, because he did the carving and things like that. Yeah, but... well, it sounds like he wants the attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as the years go on and everything, multiple others are cleared, have no real suspects. The cases would then go cold for a number of years until 2010 when a big break in the case would happen. 2010? 2010. So Holy we're, shit. We are going on two decades of these cases being unsolved. Yeah. So in April of 2010, a DNA hit on CODIS would confirm that Vicki Heath, the first victim from Kentucky, was a victim of the same killer that had m- murdered Jeannie Gilbert and Peggy Gill. Okay, so that's good. So now we have all of them in the same corner now. Yep. We know if we get the guy for one of them, we get the guy for all of them. All the DNA matches. Right. So this did give information to the police that the killer... That previously they thought the killer had started his spree in 1989. He had actually begun it two years prior in 1987. Right. So this classifies him from a spree killer to a serial killer. Got it. In 2013, three years later, 
Another match in the quota system would be made, this time to a 1991 rape and assault from Rochester, Minnesota, in which the victim had survived the ordeal of being sodomized and stabbed by her attacker. Holy shit. The survivor from this attack made a police sketch of the man who attacked her. It was almost identical. Oh, man. So he... To the Jane Doe 1990 rape. Oh, my God. He... She even described the bright green eyes with one of them being lazy. Holy shit. What the fuck? Yeah, we need to get this get this asshole. What's, mm-hmm. what's the deal? So then even though we have all these hits and quotas and everything, everything goes cold. There's no leads. Nothing of that nature. Everything gets cold again. Like we have all these cases well, connected. How many, how many guys are running around with green eyes and a lazy eye and all that shit? I don't know. God. So yeah, so that's where the I-65 killer story ends. What? Until. Oh, you're such a shit. I know. I know. I had to. You're such a... I had to. All right. Until April 5th, 2022. April 2022, that was like a couple weeks ago. Uh Uh-huh. I teased that this, this week's case was going to be... It was recently in the news. Oh, shit, yeah. Well, good thing I don't watch the news, I guess. I know. You mean your TikTok and your Facebook news, none of that's curated to only crime all the time? No. Weird. No, none of that's not, that's you. That's not me. Hashtag true crime all the time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so April 5th of this year. I mean, we're recording this on the 19th, so two weeks from today. Two weeks ago today. Right. Indiana State Police held a press conference about these cases specifically. By using, quote, investigative genealogy, they were able to identify the I-65 killer. So what investigative genealogy is, it involves uploading crime scene DNA to certain genealogy databases where the users have agreed for their DNA to be used if the police need it. So there's certain, like, you know, Ancestry and Me and 23andMe? Yeah, Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Yeah. Yeah. So those websites, there's genealogy websites like those where you can say, hey, yeah, it's okay if the police run my, run CODIS DNA against mine for familial matches. That's how they get familial matches. Okay. So, I mean, obviously they get them from other perpetrators in families when those people get arrested, but they also Mm -hmm. use genealogy websites. I've also decided if I ever submit my DNA, it will be to one of those. Because if anyone's fucky in my family, I'm going to find out. Right. They fuck around and I'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But I don't think Ancestry or Ancestry.com or 23andMe do that. Because they have to, the website has to tell you if there's a chance of that happening. That would make sense. So the I-65 killer is identified as Harry Edward Greenwell. Okay. Let's go get him. Yeah. So I'm going to play you an audio clip right now. And honestly, it's my favorite. I want it as my ringtone just because of what he's, what the police officer says making the press conference. And I just, I play it over and over in my head and it makes me so happy. Okay. Awesome. Because it's one of those like without a doubt kind of statements, you know? Cool. All right. Okay, you ready for this clip? Yep, let's do it. Okay. 
crime scene samples positively identified the suspect. The match was 99.99999% positive. It is this scientific breakthrough that ultimately led to the identification of the I-65 killer, Harry Edward Greenwell. Man, that's like a drop the mic kind of moment right I there. I know. That's why I'm like, oh, I just, I want somehow that sound framed and it's a play every time I wake up like nine, 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 all the fucking nines. It's fucking this guy. Good. All right. So let's talk about Harry Greenwell, shall we? If we have to. So Harry Edward Greenwell had a, quote, extensive criminal history from 1963 to 1998, end quotes. It included armed robbery, burglary, escaping custody twice, domestic incidents, drug possession, all the way to traffic violations. Hmm. None of that surprises me. He sounds like a real, real gem, you know, a real... Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Harry was born December 9th, 1944 in Louisville, Kentucky. Did he have a, sh a shitty childhood? I don't know. So with it being super new, we don't know a ton about his upbringing and everything of that nature. Hmm. The Indiana State Police Superintendent Douglas Carter said, quote, to the family members that are here, I hope that today might bring a little bit of solace to you to know that the animal who did this is no longer on this earth, end quote. Good. What, is he dead? He's dead. Oh. I guess that's a good thing, but also I'm like, he still didn't have to pay for it. Well, so he died at the age of 68 in Iowa. Okay. Of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So I like to, I googled it, is lung cancer painful? What Dr. Google says, it's painful in the chest, like your chest is tight and you have back pain. And I hate back pain, so I would like to believe that he died in excruciating amounts of pain. Yeah, I don't know. But... That's just, mm. all right, well, that's closure. If anything, you know, there, there's closure mm -hmm. for that shit. Jeannie Gilbert's daughter, Kim Gilbert Wright, was at the press conference, mm -hmm. and she spoke. She said, quote, we'll never know what the killer was thinking. We'll never learn any of why of his actions. And that's just where we sit today, end quote. Yeah, there's no way to, to find a motive for any of this stuff. I just... I don't know. I thought we were going to go into you telling me he had a bad childhood and that turned him into a shithead. And it's just, I don't know. Yeah, so I couldn't find a ton about his upbringing, but I was able to find that he had a wife. Mm -hmm. Her name was Julie Jenkins. She is 73 now. He, <clears throat> she was married to Harry Greenwell for nearly 20 years and totally blindsided by this press conference on Tuesday naming her husband the I-65 killer. Oh, so she had no idea. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, I mean, obviously they're going to go ask her and interview her. What was he like? What is all of this? Those sorts of things. Right. And she said, quote, one thing that's going through my mind is that I guess I'm lucky to be alive, end quote. Yeah. I mean, you were married to a serial killer for 20 years. I mean, it makes me wonder, why was he dormant? For so long. Like, you know, he died in 2013, and his criminal history and criminal record stops in 1998. So I wonder what made him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's some I don't knows in this. Do we know what his profession was? Yes. 
So Harry was an employee of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, providing public safety for over 30 years, and he retired in 2010. He worked for the railroad that whole time? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I honestly thought that maybe this was a trucker of some sort, just because it was all along I-65 like that. Mm -hmm. So that was one of my first thoughts. And then you, you said the van thing, and that kind of threw me off. But... That's interesting. I'm surprised. Yeah. Not that truckers are serial killers or anything like that. I'm clearly not saying that. Just that just seems like the, along the interstate, things like that. You know what I mean? Like that would be what a horror movie is about. Mm -hmm. Something like that. I mean, there definitely have been truck truck driver like semi truck serial killers. We'll talk about a couple of those. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. You're never going to look at anyone the same ever again. Probably not. <laughs> the further we get into this. Yeah. So back to what Julie had to say about things. She said, quote, I keep thinking about our life together. And he was kind. He was caring. He did have a temper, but that's not unusual. I don't think you kill people because you're mad at them, not strangers. I don't know what to think about much of it, other than that I feel horrible for the families that dealt with that for so many years. And I know there's nothing I can do. End quote. Damn, you know, she sounds like a sweet lady, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I hope she's not getting a bunch of hate. I hope not. So Harry, who was four years older than Julie, seemed penitent as he was dying from lung, lung cancer. Julie would later go on to say, though she had no idea about what exactly. She said that when Harry was on hospice, he, quote, asked for a priest, and a priest came. Okay. She also goes on to say, I presumed it was for confession, but I doubt that he confessed this. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't think that's an uncommon thing either, though. Yeah. So I don't I don't really know. Um, and then because Harry passed before all of this came out, his obituary is very bone-chilling to read nowadays, knowing what we know. Hmm. So his obituary states this, quote, a man with many friends who loved his straight up attitude and his willingness to help anyone. His spirit will live on in many by good deeds he offered, end quote. What the hell? You yeah. Know, I think his spirit is going to live on a different way now. Yeah. No kidding. That's kind of, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine how to be on either side of that. You know what I mean? Like to be his wife and find out this crazy thing that would just shatter your whole world yeah you know and then for the families i still feel like they didn't get any any justice for this mm -hmm. like they I get know. to know that this is what happened and this is the guy that did it i mean they still really don't know what happened right because the only person who could have answered that question is now gone too like, they, I don't know if I could ever find closure with that, or it would be really hard to do so, because you don't know why, why he chose to kill, or, kill them, or why he chose that specific days in, that specific night, like... Right. I think it would just all stink. Yeah. Stinks like rotten shit. Right. So, I mean, you've seen the pictures, the police sketches. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a little... Refresher. So that was the first police sketch. Yep. That was the second one. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to show you a picture of the man. Okay, let's see. You're going to shit your pants. Do you have the sketch in your head? Yep, I've got it. 
It's fucking creepy. Wow. It nail his his eye is lazy. Yep. No, that's like. That's a picture of him from around that time. Yeah, that's spot on. In that picture, he doesn't have a a beard. I mean, it's it's, it's like stubble. Got, yeah. But he does totally have a plaid shirt. No, from the from the nose up and the yeah, that's like it's pretty crazy. I couldn't believe it. I was like, damn, that Jane Doe witness fucking nailed it. Yeah, definitely. I am curious if she'll come out now. That he's dead. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, you wouldn't ever want to say anything mm-hmm. about yourself. You know what I mean? In that Especially situation if he lived, yeah. yeah. No way. No way. But I don't know. So that's where that stands. So I just wanted to show you pictures of the girls. Okay. Of the women, I guess. So this is a picture of Vicky, the first victim in 1987. Mm-hmm. She's the one that liked to romance novels. And this is a picture of Peggy, the one who loved baking. Mm-hmm. And did all the artistry and everything. I mean, you can tell she was really young. She was only 24 when she was murdered. Yeah. And then this is Janie Gilbert. She's the one who was getting her life back together, making a good life for her and her kids, going to school, everything like that. So. Yeah. But yeah. So this case, when I first wanted to research it and started looking into it, it was actually still going to be an unsolved case. Until it wasn't anymore. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I found that out and I was like, oh my, we have to do this even quicker now. Like, I want to let everyone know that this has happened in case you've been living under a rock and didn't know that the I-65 killer. That's me. Me. I've been living under a rock. True crime person that has been living under a rock. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Yeah. So that is the story of the I-65 killer. That was crazy. I'm glad that they at least figured out who it was. Mm-hmm. Still torn about the fact that they can't. There's no trial. There's no anything uh-huh. past that point. I even looked it up. I'm like, can they posthumously do anything? And what would they do? I mean, what's yeah? What's the point at that point? I mean, just go to his grave and kick it. Like that's terrible. Don't yeah. do that. I'm not condoning that. Don't. <laughs> yeah. He was a shitty person, yes, but we don't need to kick gravestones. I think that's a felony. Mm-hmm. All right, where are we going next week? Next week? Okay, so next week we will be going to the New York, Connecticut area, and we'll be talking about the Roadside Strangler. All right. As always, thank you so much for the reviews. They mean a lot to us. If you haven't rated us five stars, go go do it. The stars are for them, and the comments are for us. So leave, leave us a funny comment or something. Leave it all. We love it. Tell us what your go-to comfort meal is in the review. Like, we don't care. We just love yeah, reading gonna them. That's going to confuse a lot of people. That'll be awesome. That'll be great. To stay up to date on everything happening at Late Night Murder, you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Late Night Murder Podcast, Twitter at LN Murder Podcast, and you can also find us over on TikTok. If you're really enjoying the podcast and would like to support us further, you can head on over to patreon.com slash late night murder podcast. You can listen to late night murder podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts from.